Hi, I'm Vincent Andrasani, and this is episode 36 of The Place of Sound. Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode, and thanks also to those who've been following along through the last few episodes of the show. For those who happen to be listening for the first time, The Place of Sound is a show that explores the theme of space, or the social geography, using sound and listening. We do so through a variety of audio media production formats, so you can expect to do a few different types of listening in a single show. Typically, episodes consist of what we refer to as audio portraits, or oral history-style interviews that explore the topic of home. Soundscape compositions, which use everyday sounds to communicate the personal and social significance of a given place. And we often end the episode with a short documentary-style piece that explores the place-based identity of the producer. The aim with these particular projects is to allow the producer to think about the places that made them who they are today. But in this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We'll still be exploring the theme of sound and listening but we'll be listening to audio reflections. As always, this work was produced by students in the Communication and Media Studies program here at Carleton University, and it responds to the following question. What does it mean to listen? It might seem straightforward enough, but there's literally an infinite number of ways to answer it. Now, typically, the responses you'll hear are about five minutes in length, and they're delivered in the form of a monologue. The projects that you'll hear in this episode were produced in Comms 5218, Sound, Space, and the City. It's a graduate-level course in the Communication and Media Studies program that ran in the winter semester of 2022. Before we listen to the projects, we're going to take a quick second to hear about a documentary podcast series produced by Megan Linton, an Ottawa-based researcher and disability justice activist. The series is called Invisible Institutions, and it explores the injustices of large-scale state institutions and their effects on those who are labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. There are now seven episodes in the series, each of which opens up a different chapter about the history of institutionalization in Canada, showing the ways that this history still very much shapes our present. It's a timely production in light of the pandemic, and it raises questions about the ways that we do or do not care for the most vulnerable people in our society. The following is a trailer for the series, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about it, check out invisibleinstitutions.com or follow them on Twitter using the handle at INVinstitutions. I have prison pen pals and there's more similarities between my living situation and the living situation in a prison institution. 
it was like a prison. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but it was. We were basically locked in our rooms, completely alone. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast exploring the horrors of large-scale state institutions for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Canada. The host and creator, Megan Linton, is a researcher and disability justice activist investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. Join her on her journey to the grounds of current and former institutions, including interviews with survivors, community activists, and experts, as they work together to expose the exploitation, isolation, resistance, and survival facing people labeled with disabilities. Find Invisible Institutions wherever you get your podcasts. Coming February 2022. Okay, on to the projects. In this episode, we'll listen to three audio reflections, all of which are written and delivered by recent graduates of the MA program in Communication Studies. The first is by Darnell Dobson, the second by Paris Jefferson, and the third by Tag Mira. Darnell begins the episode by pushing forward an analysis of listening that he offered in an earlier episode of The Place of Sound. He thinks beyond the position that prioritizes human sound alone and instead toward one that's inclusive of the sounds of the natural environment. Darnell offers a rich analysis of a passage from the work of composer Armory Schaefer before ending the piece with an important consideration, which is that listening itself is a learned practice and is something that we can get better at over time. Here's Darnell on listening. In my first attempt at explaining what I thought listening was, I was intentional in distinguishing the difference between hearing and listening. In that distinction, I referred to listening as the ability to engage in conversation and understand different feelings or perspectives. And while I do still maintain that that outlook is a very good starting point in determining what it means to listen, quite a few of our readings and discussions in class have caused me to realize that this is a very generalized outlook on listening. I say this because my basic definition only took into consideration the interpretation of human sounds, primarily voices and language, while ignoring the fact that there are so many other sounds in our environment that are just as important as verbal conversation between humans. I began to recognize the gap in my definition during the Schaefer and Thompson readings from week four of the class which talked about the soundscape. Thompson's definition of the soundscape as a physical environment as well as a means of perceiving the world constituted somewhat of an aha moment for me, and I ended up somewhat criticizing myself for not coming to a similar conclusion sooner or without the help of Thompson. 
However, Schaefer's reading was where I really began to see the sounds outside of the human language rise to prominence, as well as how we perceive this world of sounds. On page 19, in describing the sound of rain, Schaefer says, and I quote, Water never dies, and the wise man rejoices in it. No two raindrops sound alike, as the attentive ear will detect. Is then the sound of Persian rain like that of the Azores? In Fiji, a summer rainstorm whips past in an enormous swirl, taking less than 60 seconds, while in London it drones on as a boring as a businessman's story. In parts of Australia, it does not rain for two or more years. When it does, young children are sometimes frightened by the sound. On the Pacific coast of North America, it rains gently, but continuously on an average of days each year. End quote. Reading that paragraph, I started to wonder if one way to look at the sound of raindrops is through the type of surface it hits. Can we use that to examine or explore how the soundscape changes over time? For example, would the rain in an area that was once predominantly rural with a lot of grasslands sound different to that same area now urbanized and populated with concrete buildings and roads and pavements? It was an interesting food for thought, in my opinion, which made me really start to understand the whole idea of removing the human perspective as the default starting point for analyzing sound, something which Professor Andrasani highlighted in another of our previous lectures. There was another aspect of listening that I did not take into consideration in my initial reflection, and that is the fact that to interpret sounds and understand feelings, one has to do more than just hear the sound but one has to feel it, which brings into relevance our other senses. Serrazo describes it as multimodal listening, which speaks to a holistic approach to listening. The vibration aspect is very interesting, and I agree with Serrazo that it is often ignored. I did not consider it. However, now that I am paying attention to this feature, it is certainly an important part of the way I personally listen, especially to music. It also made me think about the likelihood that there is an intrinsic or even spiritual aspect to sound. For example, thinking about songs or sounds that evoke some form of religious or spiritual reverence. A popular Bob Marley quote came to mind while thinking about this. He said, one good thing about music, when it hits you feel no pain. Thinking about that quote in this context, Marley is insinuating here that there is a feeling. It may not be pain, as Marley says but you feel something that goes deeper than hearing the song or sound. Sarazo also alludes to this feeling in her anecdote about listening to an album over and over, which resulted in a loss of stimulation by way of the songs, but then regaining that stimulation in a new way after listening to the songs in a new listening environment. The concert of the band who wrote and performed the songs. According to Sarazo, this heightened vitality completely changed how she experienced the album. And this, for me, was another one of those aha moments because it made so much sense. But again, it was something I never considered in my initial definition of listening. Finally, one thing I was glad to see manifest in the readings that I had mentioned in my first reflection was the ability to learn how to be a good listener. Sarazo was far more expansive in her explanation than I was or probably could be. However, it was comforting to see that scholars are placing a focus on how we can de-learn old listening habits and learn new, more effective ways of listening. The second audio reflection is by Paris Jefferson. 
Paris also explores what it means to listen. However, she does so by considering the smaller sounds, the ones that are easily lost in the noisiness of the city. Paris pulls from central thinkers in the field of sound studies like Murray Schaefer, Emily Thompson, and Stephen Feld, among others, focusing on Feld's work in particular, which explores the importance of birdsong, a sound that's also easily lost in the modern city. Paris considers the importance of two birds in particular in spaces that she herself has lived, the nightingale in London and the lyrebird in Australia, acknowledging that the sounds of both are key elements of the local context. She ends with a brief mention of how all this might apply here in our own context, and in particular, what it might mean in light of the Freedom Convoy's occupation of the city, a moment during which this piece was produced. Hi, I'm Paris Jefferson, and this is the Keynote Speaker. Since the end of the medieval walled cities, which had clear boundary demarcations and distinct sounds associated within it, one question has been asked of modern cities that do not benefit from a moat or a thick stone wall, and it is this. Where does the boundary of an urbanized modern city end? Is the center fixed or does it move? Are there sounds that we can associate with cities and more specifically with our sense of our city? How do we listen? By the year 1900, the Western soundscape had changed dramatically. And as Emily Thompson notes, by 1933, both the nature of sounds and the culture of listening were unlike anything that had come before. We had recordings that disembodied the sound from the source. And by the 21st century, as Steph Sarasso observes, more and more people are plugged into their iPods, smartphones, and electronic devices, using recordings as a way to tune out the overstimulation from the sonic environment. With the ever-increasing amount of movement, gentrification, and construction, this added to not only the sense of sonic displacement, but a general sense of feeling out of place in these fast-changing decades. But what of the smaller inhabitants of the city who cannot tune out the man-made sounds of machinery and cannot compete with the sonic environment? Do these creatures adapt? A Nightingale Sang in Barclay Square is a song written in 1939 by Eric Maschwitz and Manning Sherwin. It is about two lovers meeting in Mayfair in London. One line of the lyrics, immortalised by Tony Bennett, is That certain sound, that certain night, the night we met, there was magic abroad the air. There were angels dining at the Ritz, and a nightingale sang in Barclay Square. The sound of the nightingale has been forever linked to this song, this place just off Oxford Street, romanticised by the radio listeners of the war years and for generations beyond. It speaks to an intimacy, the sound of love, but the nightingale could not compete for a place in the new, aggressive and modern market and has long since flown the coop away from London. But what of the birds that have managed to listen 
and find their voices in these discomforting modern sounds. One such bird is called the lyrebird, and it resides in Australia. In David Attenborough's Planet Earth, he tracks down a local lyrebird who can perfectly imitate at least 20 other birds. In an attempt to outsing not only his feathered rivals, the male lyrebird incorporates other sounds he hears from his sonic environment. A camera shutter, a camera with a motor drive, a car alarm, and the foresters and their chainsaws who work nearby. He cannot tune out his rivals with headphones, but he can outsing them all by declaring that this is his place. He is the keynote speaker. As R. Murray Schaefer writes, the keynote is a musical term. It is the anchor or fundamental tone, the reference point that everything else takes its special meaning. The lyrebird has taken all the sounds and made them his own. Schaefer continues that the keynote sounds have imprinted themselves so deeply on the people hearing them that life without them would be sensed as a distinct impoverishment. And this is nowhere more apparent than the songs from the Basavi tribe in Papua, New Guinea. When Stephen Feld went to study and record them, he had no idea that their songs were vocalized mappings of the rainforest, ones the Basavi sang from the birds' point of view. To the Basavi, birds were what humans eventually became by achieving death. Bird sounds are the voice of memory and the resonance of ancestry. Birds are gone reverberators. They are absence turned into presence, a presence that makes absence audible and visible. This is a remarkable and holistic example of a communal sonic environment between human and animal. What we might have heard in pre-industrial times ourselves, but with the competing actors for a place to call home, the urban sonic environment has become filled with a myriad of sounds that are not in unison, but disjointed, disembodied, and downloaded. One modern and local example is the truckers' protest here in Ottawa, where the honking of massive horns blazes forth morning and night, drowning out all other voices, all other sounds. They feel that this is the best way for their voice to be amplified in the competing clang of politics. Intimate downtown diners have fled. Pedestrians take the long route, and resident winter crows in Parliament Hill have flown away. These truckers have made the streets around government their impromptu place. It is no longer a place for its local inhabitants, human or otherwise. The horns have become the keynote speaker. Unlike the lyrebird and the Basavi tribe who respond to and incorporate its sonic environment, the truckers have nullified all other sounds, creating sleepless, anxious nights empty pockets for restaurateurs, and leaving locals to wonder, what happened to my place? 
And when the truckers eventually leave and take their impromptu camp with them, what sounds might we notice? What sounds might we welcome? What will be listened to that was once tuned out in our sonic environment? And thank you for tuning in. The third and final piece is by Tag Omira. In it, Tag explores the importance of subjectivity in both the act of listening and in the context of understanding place. Tag borrows from the work of composer R. Murray Schaefer, geographer Tim Cresswell, and theorist Gaston Bachelard, among others, while developing some thoughts on sound, space, and home. She then puts these theoretical ideas to work in the context of the Freedom Convoy and the way that this occupation negatively impacted some of the city's most vulnerable communities. Audio Reflection 2. Sound in Space, Home as Place. What does it mean to listen? While this question is seemingly simple, the multitude of possible answers implies that the act of listening or hearing is not uncomplicated. As I argued in my previous attempt in answering this complex query, listening is subjective and one's experiences and positionality have a crucial influence on how every sound is heard and understood. Like anything, our relationship to particular sounds is influenced by our experiences and understandings. We cannot make sense of a sound without understanding it through our own biases. It is arguably impossible to divorce what we hear from what we know. For example, while I might hear thunder and experience excitement due to my own positive past experiences with storms, another might hear the same sound and have a negative reaction, associating it with their experiences of thunderstorms as uncertain or dangerous. Once we have experienced and identified a sound for the first time, we identify it with a certain impression or feeling. Upon hearing every sound, our experience tells us how to hear and how to react. Our sound experiences are colored by the context in which we first heard a particular sound. R. Murray Schaefer understood the importance of positionality and bias in the study of soundscapes where he viewed them as being not just about the sounds, but about your perception of them. Sound artist Eric Leonardson explains Schaefer's perception in an episode of the podcast Phantom Power, stating, If you leave out the subjective aspect of your experience in that soundscape, you don't have a full understanding yet. You are part of the soundscape as much as the sounds that you consider exterior to yourself. Understanding the importance of subjectivity is also vital when studying the relationship between sound and place and the influence that a space can have on our understanding of sound and vice versa. As human geographer Tim Cresswell argues, place is not simply something to be observed, researched, and written about, but is itself part of the way we see. Thus, not only does our own bias influence how we experience place, but in turn, place influences how we understand new experiences. French philosopher Gaston Bachelard argued in his book, The Poetics of Space, that the space of the home is the first to provide us with the fundamental experiences that lead us to understanding what we see outside the home. Therefore, the home is the first space that frames our understandings of other places. 
through our experiences of sights and sounds. As I argued in my first audio reflection, because of the biases that influence how we hear sound, it makes sense that communities with common experiences would derive similar meanings from certain sounds. I would like to further this idea by focusing specifically on the family community and its influence on how we hear and listen. Firstly, I would like to challenge the idea of the home as a safe or protected space relating this to the intersectional nature of human experience. Not only did the goings-on inside the home influence our experience with sound, family dynamics as calm or violent, quiet or loud, masculine or feminine, but the physical location of the home in terms of the natural environment or the geographical location surely all influence how sound is absorbed and perceived. The acoustics of neighborhoods influenced by sound barriers or lack thereof the relationships between individuals, the presence of pets or pests, even the professions of house members are all examples of contributing factors to our sound perceptions. While I intend to focus further on the importance of home as a space that majorly forms our relationship with sound, in this particular audio reflection, it will be exemplified through one significant example illustrated through a recent article by CBC's Guy Quenville. The article focuses on the experiences of women living in downtown Ottawa at Cornerstone Housing for Women. The women's only shelter provides a safe space for women who in many cases have experienced trauma and mental health difficulties due to challenging and oftentimes dangerous home lives. While Cornerstone is meant to be a safe and quiet environment for healing and recovering, the ongoing protest or freedom convoy occurring in downtown Ottawa has resulted in the harassment of women living at Cornerstone locations in the city's center. Additionally, as many of the Cornerstone downtown locations are small and without yards, the clients are unable to go outside without facing threatening sounds. The incessant honking and screaming has re-triggered women who have already experienced trauma, resulting in the hospitalization of at least one client. While the relentless honking is presumably met with feelings of annoyance and irritability by many, and perhaps more extremely by those living in the downtown core, those with certain traumatic backgrounds may interpret these sounds as more than irritable, associating them with violence and extreme distress. Not only does this point to the importance of acknowledging sounds as subjective, but perhaps also to the idea that silence is a privilege meant for those only who can afford it. The concept of the home and the family as the initial space in which we experience sounds is vital in order to understand how positionality and intersecting identities influence our distinct experiences to sound. While limited by the time constraints of this assignment, this conversation can contain much more regarding silence as privilege, the concept of hearing versus listening, listening as a function of identity, and the indefiniteness of sound experience. As a quick note, I just want to apologize for the sounds outside. A lot of traffic in my neighborhood has been redirected due to the protests and there may be a few honking sounds in the back. So I apologize for that. Thank you.
Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode of The Place of Sound. But before I sign off, a couple of quick notes. A reminder that what we've listened to here on this show is only a fraction of the work produced in association with this project. If you're interested in checking out more, have a look at theplaceofsound.ca, where you're not only able to hear more audio media, but in some cases, to see some of the original photos and the writing that students produce to go along with it. There's also a featured work section on the site's blog, where you can access some notable individual projects. And in the classes section, you can have a look at some of the work produced in each of the previous semesters. And lastly, under the Listen link, you're able to access the show's archive and listen back to any episode of the show you'd like to hear. But in the meantime, keep your ear out for upcoming episodes of the show, which air on CKCU Radio every other Monday at 6.30 p.m., and are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Place of Sound.